Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 through 30, 24. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me his son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my household will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give her birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he laid with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. all can be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. I think smaller group today, everyone knows I'm not Cody Waterman. Um, he asked me to fill in this week as he's out of town with his family. Um, would you guys please join me in prayer as we start here? Father, this world is so very broken. And we feel that brokenness every day. 
Yet we know you have conquered and are risen and reigning. Please open our hearts and minds to learn from the story of brokenness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many times have you heard the phrases, but I want it, or but they got one, or that's not fair from children? Maybe you are that child, or maybe you're a parent who heard that on the way here this morning. What are these statements often followed with if the child doesn't get what they want? I've usually seen it go one of two ways. The child throws a fit to try to convince the person in charge to give them what they want, or the child tries to get what they want without convincing them through deception or force. And that response doesn't seem to change very much as we get older. Really, it seems we just want things even more. We know more people who got one, and we see more things that are unfair. We're going to see today that we often respond to our unfulfilled desires by turning to other people to satisfy them. We ask and even demand that they be our God, that they make us happy, that they fill our emptiness. We offer our idols sacrifices to appease them and get what we want. And that leads to dysfunction and division. It leads to it in our marriages, in our households, in our cities, and in our world. But the good news for us today is that God's plan is greater than our dysfunctional, divisive idolatry. So we're going to start today by looking at the main characters from today's story and their desires, idols, sacrifices, and consequences. And then we're going to wrap up by looking at what God's doing in the midst of all this and what that means for us today. So we'll start with Leah and her unmet desires. We just read last week in verse 30 that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. We continue today right out of the gate with Leah making it very clear that she feels and actually is, even according to God, unloved and hated by her husband. I want to be clear here, we're not looking at a bad desire. This isn't the kid who's trying to put their finger in an outlet. This is the child who's hungry and crying out for food. The desire she has is love. What could be more natural? Isn't it the design of God for husbands to love their wives? The idol she turns to to fulfill this desire very quickly shows itself to be her husband, Jacob. Let's just take a minute to look at the names she gives her first three children and the statements she makes about them. To paraphrase, see, I have borne a son, now you will love me. God has heard that you still don't love me, so here's another one, surely he's enough. And following that, you will be a attached to me now that I've given you three sons. She seems to be content after her fourth to say, I will praise the Lord, 
before getting any recognition from Jacob. But we see that this may have been a false contentment, as she's fine with her four sons as long as Rachel doesn't have any. As soon as she does, however, even by her servant, we see Leah afraid she's going to lose what little love she may have gained from her children, as Rachel's found a way to provide what only she used to be able to. The names of her following sons show that she's still wanting them to bless her, make her happy, and give her honor from her husband. Now, I want to take another moment to note again, it's not wrong for her to seek love from her husband. This is a good desire. Many people in her situation may seek to have that desire met outside of their household, which would be wrong. The issue here is not her desire that Jacob love her, but demanding that he does and being willing to worship him with her life and lay her children down as sacrifices to him. God has been faithful in seeing her and providing for her, and her response is to be faithless toward him. Just like a gold or wooden idol, she takes these blessings that God has given her, and rather than accepting them in gratitude, praising him, she places them before Jacob to trade what God gave freely for what he can give if she pays the price. The price is never enough, though. Idols are never satisfied, and what they give in return, we try to devour but aren't satisfied ourselves. But that's not all. We don't just end up unfulfilled when we do this. We end up hurting ourselves and others. There are consequences for this action. Imagine for a minute you're Reuben, Leah's firstborn. Your mom literally named you See a Son to get your dad to love her. And when your younger brother was born, she said she was thankful because you weren't enough to get the job done. Ouch. Talk about a family in need of some serious counseling. But it continues to get way worse. We see him coming up again out of all the children the one who's around the longest, seeing this game get played, and he goes and finds mandrakes in the field and brings them to his mother. Now, mandrakes are a root, and in Hebrew are actually referred to as love apples because they were believed to increase fertility. What we may miss at first glance is that her son is coming to her with care and love for her, trying to help her get what she wants because him being born wasn't enough. Maybe I can help her get the children she wants so that she'll be happy and I won't be a failure to her. And what does she do? Instead of eating them and thanking him, she gives this precious gift away to get another night with Jacob. Essentially saying, I don't need you to get this job done. If I can just get with Jacob, I can do it myself. Is it any surprise to us that Reuben shows up again in Genesis 35, 22? With all this dysfunction, pain, and lack of love he's felt. There he's seen having, there he's seen 
trying to get that desire fulfilled by other household women, specifically one of his father's other wives, one of his mother figures in his household growing up. Sex and love seem to have been everything to my mom. Maybe I should try that out. And then there's Dinah. Leah bore one last time, probably thinking that this one, like every time before, was going to be the one, the one that beyond all doubt makes her the loved one. And it's a daughter. And seemingly, because she was a daughter and not a son that Jacob would have valued more, she doesn't get any special significance to her name. Not even the little statements that her sons do. She's likely viewed as an immediate failure out of the womb to be an acceptable offering to Jacob for his love. Even more dysfunction. And that's only the start of the beyond difficult trials that Dinah goes through because of her gender. As if Leah's story isn't enough, there's Rachel as well. We'd be tempted to look at Leah and say, well, Rachel has the love of Jacob. What more could she want? But she cannot bear children. But the desire isn't just being a mother. In her culture, childbearing was often seen as what gave one, one value or status in society. She desires to be thought of highly by others, to be seen as having value in the world. You can see this in the fact that when she can't have her own biological children, she's willing to give her husband her servant. It matters more to her that she has children to call hers than if she actually bears them herself. We see this further in the names she gives her sons, implying that God has judged how despised I am and has given me a son to remove that. And then she follows that up with having the son will make me even more valued than my sister. And finally, when Joseph's born, she says, may God give me more children, and God has used this son to remove me from being despised. We know that Jacob already does value and love her. That's very clear. This isn't talking about his opinion here. This value from others is obviously very important to her. And this desire for value, like Leah's desire for love, at its root level is not bad. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory on this topic, which he terms glory instead of value. But he writes, When I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton Johnson and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory quite frankly in the sense of fame or good report. But not fame conferred by our fellow creatures, fame with God, approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then when I had thought it over, I saw this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate it from the parable, or can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. 
I suddenly remembered no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as the great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently, what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, and a creature before its creator. God has made Rachel a woman. And women have the unique ability to participate in filling and forming the earth as God has commanded by bringing new life into the world. This is beautiful and amazing and does deserve recognition. Reproduction is not a result of the fall. It was there before it. God declared it with the rest of creation good. And our world today, even though fallen, still recognizes this goodness sometimes. But childbearing is not the only way that humans can participate in these calls of God. And our value should be found in being image bearers of God in all the ways that we can do that. Not merely in a particular way and from how mankind recognizes it. Our very recognition of these things as being good is not meant to point to us, but to point back to God and how good he is to have made us in these ways. It is okay for her to mourn that she cannot participate in glorifying God in this way, but to demand it leads to sin. The idol in her life she wants to get this approval and value from is the world. And it seems particularly in our passage, other women. The kind of approval Leah seems to have an excess of. Like Leah, Rachel is willing to make sacrifices of the good things she has to get her desires met. She already has to share her husband with her sister, but now she's willing to give him, to share him even more in verse 3 by giving him her family servant as well. She's willing to damage her strong relationship with Jacob by threatening him if he cannot give her the children she wants. And she's willing to sacrifice further sharing her husband again with her sister if she can just get some of those mandrakes that might be able to help her conceive. The sacrifice for Rachel is her loving relationship with Jacob. The first consequence of Rachel's demanding to feel valued is that her relationship with Jacob is fractured. He gets angry with her, and it strains their relationship that has so far been marked by mutual love. And the second consequence is that she fractures her family. Two women to one man was already not God's design and resulted in dysfunction and division already. But in order to get what she wants, Rachel's willing to add more 
which then spurs Leah on to add even more. This is just such a mess. And from her naming, we see that Rachel cares a lot about beating her sister as she uses combative language like judge and wrestle rather than the longing language of Leah like see, heard, and attached. Rachel has the love that Leah so desires, but instead of taking the opportunity to lift Leah up and encourage her, she adds to the hatred Leah is experiencing from Jacob by compounding her own on top of it. From the Mandrake story, we learned that apparently, since Leah can no longer bear children, Jacob spends his nights exclusively with Rachel. Rachel would rather have children than spend every night with Jacob, but she seems content to keep him to herself, knowing that at least she's keeping him from others. You just can't make this sort of family drama up, like made for TV. And then finally, we get to Jacob, the patriarch. At first glance, you might seem to think that he doesn't do much in this story, in the middle of all this dysfunction. And you'd be right. Jacob does what Jacob does best, and he cheats the game. He's more than happy to have the sons that Leah provides, but keep her ever willing to do more to gain his approval since he's stuck with her. He's physically attracted to Rachel, but when she's going through distress, rather than help her or lead her to where she should be finding her identity, he basically implies, look at Leah. She has four kids. It's obviously not my fault. Go take it up with God. He's willing to welcome two more women into his household to appease his wife's desires. Though he probably heard of the mistakes of Uncle or Grandpa Abraham in that regard and how his father, Isaac, at least stayed away from repeating those choices. He does so to keep his wives happy with him, even if it feeds their war with each other, ever seeking to place himself in the place of the one who gets what he wants without having to work for it. He gets children without having to love Leah and sex with Rachel without having to sympathize with her or lead her in his marriage. He worked 14 years for the two, for two of them. Isn't that enough work for his household? His desire is for rest. Once again, rest or ease in its right amount and right time isn't a bad desire. But when we demand it, and respond to any threats to it, like he does toward Rachel, it has obviously become an idol. It seems that the idol that Jacob is turning to for this rest, ease, comfort, is his ideal household. One where he has to do nothing, and nobody bothers him. He believes that can give him the rest he desires. And this picture of an ideal household seems to revolve around his relationship with Rachel. Rachel he loves, Rachel he worked for, Rachel he chooses to spend his nights with once Leah can no longer provide what Rachel can't. If he actually cared more about having sons, he would have responded differently to Leah. 
Sure, they're nice, but he didn't even want to marry her. It seems to him that she's just doing her job as a part of his household. He sits back while all this crazy stuff is happening around him. He wants to rest in the post-hard work world of his marriage, and he's willing to bend any rule or act any way to keep his relationship good on the surface so that he can keep up this dream household facade, even if everything is crumbling around him. The sacrifice Jacob is willing to make to keep this going is his leadership. God has placed him in a position of leadership in his household, but rather than calling out Rachel when she starts fighting with Leah or uh, speaking up when Leah talks about Reuben coming forward and being involved in all this, he stays silent. When his wife, wives want him to sleep with their servants, he stays silent. When Leah works around his favoritism with a bribe, he's silent. The only time he speaks up is when he gets angry at Rachel because he sees her as threatening this ideal household that he's uh, built. The consequence of the sacrifice is everything that we've studied already and a lot that we're going to learn about in future weeks. His children are going to take matters into their own hands because of the power vacuum that he creates uh, in the uh, passage we're going to read in a few weeks with Dinah. They don't respect him and lie to him about Joseph. And as we've already said, Reuben is not taught morality, but immorality through his family growing up and eventually sleeps with one of his father's wives. Jacob's failure to lead and desire to keep up appearances ends up with generational effects. So now that we've looked at the desires, idols, sacrifices, and consequences of Leah, Rachel, and Jacob, let's ask ourselves the question that I'm sure the children in this family were asking every day, where is God in all of this? We may not have grown up in a family like these children did, but each and every one of us has experienced pain, dysfunction, and division from others as a result of others' sin. The world today will tell you that your pain causes you to act in dysfunctional ways, that you really can't be blamed for any of that. You're not the bad guy, you're the victim. And when your child goes to school or the kid who felt left out by you goes to their counselor, they're told you're the bad guy and they're the victim. So much of our world today is just shifting blame for pain and dysfunction. As an example of this, let's look at how they would handle Jacob. He doesn't lead and idolizes a restful, blissful household for himself, but the world would tell you that's merely because Isaac didn't love him and he only felt love from his mother growing up. And it isn't Isaac's fault because Abraham tied him up and tried to offer him as a sacrifice. And Noah was a drunk, and Cain murdered Seth's brother, and Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and the serpent lied, and God created the tree and gave Eve to Adam. Wait, that sounds familiar. 
the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. When we experience pain, the consequences of our sin and the sin of others, we want to shift the blame, and the one we ultimately want to shift it on is God. If God is good, why does he allow so much evil in the world? Well, let me let you in on a secret today. You may truly be a victim of the sins of our culture and of your parents and of your peers, and there are nationalities, families, and countries that have experienced truly terrible things that boggle the mind. But the history of mankind, including your own, is not a history primarily full of victimhood, but of oppression. Tell me, when God created the cosmos, was it good? And when he placed Adam in it, did he not place him in the best part of it? Did he not give him authority over all creation? Did he not give him meaningful work to accomplish and participate in? Work free of thorns and thistles and toil. Did he not provide the perfect companion to accomplish this work with? Did he not give them freedom to eat whatever they wanted in the garden save one tree? And very broad instructions on their work so they could participate in liberty within this good creation? And did he not even give them the opportunity to disobey him, letting them know what the consequences would be, not forcing them to act and do exactly as he told them? So what happened? We need to face this truth. We broke the world. The Bible says that not only do we experience pain and dysfunction as a result of mankind's sin in the world as victims, and not only do we add to it for others and hurt them as oppressors, we see in Romans 8 that all of creation groans in the pains of childbirth because of what we have done in rebelling against God at the devil's tempting. Every dead animal on the highway, every acid rain, every polluted lake, every forest burned down by our carelessness, every oil spill, every radioactive animal in Chernobyl, every piece of iron used not to build up society, but to kill, maim, and torture, every genetic deformity we create in a lab somewhere cries out to God that they did nothing wrong, that we, their caretakers, are in rebellion toward him, and that they are suffering under us. They are calling out for our judgment. And when God, knowing that all of this will take place, doesn't kill Adam and Eve on the spot, but promises to provide a way to redeem them, is that not grace? Leaving them in the world meant that they would continue to add to its dysfunction and hurt the creation and hurt their children and when Cain sins and kills his brother and begs for mercy and God gives him less than he deserves, is that not grace? When later, left to themselves, mankind literally becomes so wicked, the Bible says every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. He chooses to preserve the animals and a remnant of men, a remnant he knows just after they're saved 
will continue to add dysfunction to the world. Is that not grace? When everyone in today's story is asking, they're, they're hurting each other, hurt by others, divided from one another, we with all of creation ask, where is God? The main characters in today's story each seem to have ideas of what God is doing and why. They each believe he's on their side against the others. But three times we get told explicitly not just where they think he is, but what he's actually doing. In chapter 29, verse 31, we see Leah, he sees Leah's pain and opens her womb. In chapter 30, verse 17, he listens to Leah's request to bear again. And in verse 22, he remembers Rachel, who's caused so much pain in her family, and yet he graciously opens her womb as well. God here is doing what God does throughout the Bible, giving undeserved grace to sinners like you and me. That's where God was when Jesus was lying in the manger. That's where God is when he's hanging on the cross. And according to Hebrews 10, that is where he is now in heaven reigning and where he will be forevermore when he returns and his place is with man for eternity. Despite what our culture may tell us, God knows that what we need isn't for him to strike our oppressors down. It isn't for him to try to restart the human race. And it's not for us to have a list of how to live good enough to not continue the pattern of sin we see in our fathers. Every one of those has been tried. He's shown us that we cannot live up to the law he gives us and that we're so wicked that when he takes out the oppressors, we just become them instead. Instead, God, even in today's passage, in this dysfunctional family, is working towards sending his son. Not through, Jake, not through Joseph, who Jacob would have chosen, but through the offspring of unloved Leah to pay for their sin, not just uniting these 12 sons, but uniting the divided sons of all nations sending his spirit to them to change their hearts and bringing the world and all its dysfunction back to how it was supposed to be, but even better. All the while being just and not ignoring sin or making light of it, but truly punishing it so that every victim of fallen in creation from you and me to the animals, the rocks, the trees will get true justice for the pain mankind and the demons have caused through their rebellion. Why do bad things happen to good people? As R.C. Sproul once put it, that only happened once and he volunteered. Unlike our idols, God doesn't demand a sacrifice and then leave us hungry. He provides our sacrifice and makes us co-heirs with Christ invited to an eternal feast. This is what it means in Galatians 3.28 when we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, 
heirs according to promise. He meets our good desires more fully than any idol could or more than we ever could by trying to take it from our oppressors. He gives us true love, true value, and true rest. What kind of judgment must be reserved for those who would reject God and continue in idolatry without regard for what they are doing to others or to creation when such grace has been offered to us? And that brings us again to our main point for today. God's plan is greater than our dysfunctional, divisive idolatry. So what are some applications and implications of this passage for us today? Honestly, there are so many, I just want to go through a few really quick. First, when you have good desires that are left unfulfilled, experience the brokenness of this world, turn to God, not to idolatrous relationships. We see in today's passage that unlike our idols, God hears, God sees, and God provides beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. His plan for us is far greater than our plans or our greatest desires because it is a return to what we were made for by the one who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves. Second, when you have good desires that are left unfulfilled and experience the brokenness of the world, appreciate the undeserved blessings that remain. Leah isn't able to appreciate her children because she sees them as pawns to get what she wants. Rachel is unable to appreciate the love of Jacob except to get what she wants. And Jacob is unable to appreciate the responsibility and ability God has given him to lead in his household except to get what he wants. <laughs> Even in this fallen world where many of our good desires go unfulfilled until Christ returns, we do experience real blessings. Let's appreciate and notice those rather than offering them as sacrifices to our idols. Our third application is this. When you have good desires that are unfulfilled and experience the brokenness of the world, avoid envy of God's blessing on others. Comparison was obviously at the root of so much of what happened in today's passage. We all experience brokenness and the inerrant goodness of creation in different ways, and some of us experience them more than others. If, in today's story, the characters had not been comparing themselves to one another, they would have avoided being tempted in many of the ways they were. They would have been able to look past themselves and remember not to get caught up in the pain that other pain-ridden people were causing them or to turn these tatters of God's plan into their gods, but to look forward to what God had promised to do for them one day and how that would be the true fulfillment of not just their good desires, but the desires of all of fallen creation. They would have been able to fulfill the heart of John 21, 22, and each focus on what God would have them do rather than what's fair or unfair. 
And then we come to our final application. When you have good desires that are left unfulfilled and experience the brokenness of the world, love like you have been loved by God rather than demanding something from others. Imagine how different this story would have been if Rachel, believing she already had all she needed in the promise-keeping God, started by comforting Leah in the ways she was experiencing the real fallenness of the world. But then Leah was able to do the same for Rachel when she couldn't have children, both recognizing they are experiencing the results of sin in the world, sin they add to themselves, and sin that God has promised one day to deal with through their line. Imagine if Jacob had thought of how God had shown him undeserved grace in his vision at Bethel when God introduces himself as the God of his father, Isaac, who he just took advantage of and lied to. What if from that grace, he showed Rachel grace when she came, sharing her pain with him, and when Leah was feeling unloved? They would have been able to do as Romans 12, 15 says, and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, none of this would have fixed any of their pasts or the fact that their family did not look like how God intended it to. Just like our loving one another is not enough by itself to remake the world or solve our problems. Jesus didn't just need to come and teach us how to love one another. He needed to come and die as a sacrifice for our sins. But he did come to teach us as well. And he told us in John 13, 34, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should each love each other. In this way, we can show ourselves to be the first fruits of this new creation. We can be united and function well in this dysfunctional and divided world. And we can eagerly wait together with all of creation for the final redemption of the cosmos that is coming on that day. God can redeem our dysfunction. He can unite our division. And he's done so at the cross. One day, he will do so completely when he returns. Until that day, let's not be distracted by our idols, but place our hope in the promise. Let me remind you of that promise as we close our time in this passage. This comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Father,